Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we are headed as a church. Once again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. If you Google the phrase identity crisis, the first definition that comes up is the one that I want to put up here on the screen. Identity crisis is defined as a period of uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity becomes insecure. Listen to some of those words. A period of, say that word out loud, uncertainty. Say this word out loud, confusion. An identity crisis is a period of uncertainty or confusion in which a person's sense of their identity becomes insecure. When I read that definition, this question struck me. Is there anything that more describes our society and our culture today than that definition? From race and culture to sexuality and gender. We are a people defined by uncertainty and confusion about who we are. Like a ship without an anchor, we are being tossed about in a sea of uncertainty. Where has all of this sense of uncertainty, where has this sea of confusion and uncertainty today come from? When we think about us as a people and how uncertain and confused we are about so many things today, I think some of the reason we're where we are today is because of major decisions we've made in our past. And here's what I mean by that. 50 years ago this year, 50 years ago this year, there was a watermark case, a watershed case in the United States Supreme Court called Epperson versus Arkansas. You may have never even heard of that case. It is the case that opened the floodgates for the teaching of evolution as the primary means of where we came from in public schools rather than being created in the image of God by a God who loved us and has a purpose for our lives. 
50 years later, we sit here and evolution has now taught an entire generation that we are nothing more than the latest version of a cosmic coincidence that leaves life with no real meaning, purpose, and significance. No wonder Paul wrote about us in Romans 1 and said, professing to be wise, they became as fools. We've made decisions in our past that have eroded our sense of identity. But not only do we find we're where we are today because of our past, we have a major contributing factor to our identity crisis that is unique to our own time. And it is that practice of what has become known as social media. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and the list goes on and on and on. It's estimated today that the average American spends at minimum two hours per day on social media. And as you get down to the age of teenager, that goes up to almost nine hours per day. One psychologist wrote this about social media. Listen to what he said. Social media has caused us to shift away from expressing our self-identities and toward constructing facades based on the answers to these questions. How will others look at me? And how can I ensure that others view me positively? The goal for many now in their use of social media becomes how they can curry acceptance, popularity, status, and by extension, self-esteem through their profiles and postings. We come to see, listen to this, we come to see our identities as those we would like to have or that we want people to see rather than who we really are. We've lost our sense of identity. When you understand the decisions we've made in our past and how we've now educated a generation that you come from nothing, you are nothing, and you're headed to nothing, And now we live in a culture where we're constantly trying to create this perfect facade, this image that we can portray so that everybody else will think we just got it all together all the time. We're really facing an identity crisis. Tossed about in a sea of uncertainty and confusion, we've lost an understanding of who We are. But I have good news for you this morning. In the midst of all the uncertainty and confusion about who we are, God's word speaks with crystal clarity about who we are to those of us who follow Jesus. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is this reality. For those of us who follow Jesus, one of the greatest things that can happen in your life and mine is that we would simply begin to see ourselves the way God sees us. 
You know, my prayer for a lot of you over the next several weeks as we launch in this weekend of this series in the book of Ephesians, as we're studying together this letter, this weekend we're launching into this series, Knowing Who You Are. Over the next several weeks, the Apostle Paul, in writing this letter, is going to give us truth about who we are in Christ. And my prayer for you today, if you are a follower of Jesus, is that over the next several weekends, you would not have your your identity shaped by contemporary culture. You would not have your identity shaped by this facade that you're trying to create, but that you would begin to understand who you are in Christ. And when you begin to see yourselves as who you are in Christ, it changes everything about how you see life and how you begin to live the life that God has called you to live. So we're going to begin this morning in one verse of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 3. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it there. Last weekend, we looked at the opening of this letter, verses 1 and 2. This weekend, we're only going to look at one verse of Scripture, verse number 3. You say, Pastor, if we only look at one verse at a time, we're going to be in the letter of Ephesians until Jesus comes again. I understand that. We're not going to do that all the way through. But you need to understand, starting in verse 3 and running all the way down to verse 14 of chapter 1 is the single longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. Verse 3, all the way to verse 14, we show about 12 different verses, but in the New Testament, it's literally one enormous sentence. And verse 3 is really the 30,000-foot view. It's the summary of the whole sentence. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack verse number 3, and then for the next several weekends, we're going to unpack the rest of this sentence that is filled with incredible truth about who you and I are in Christ. If you're ready, say amen. amen. Verse 3, let me read it for you. Blessed be the God and Father... Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let's read it together out loud. It's such an important verse. You ready? One, two, three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Hang on right there. Whoa, 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 whoa. With what? Every. Some? Every. Most? Every. Who has blessed us. That means it's already done, right? So let's pick up right here. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That ought to make you say Amen. Without any unpacking at all, that tells you something about who you are in Christ. Now, what I want to do is I want to I take this and give you this in what we're calling an identity statement that we're going to use over the next several weeks as kind of our foundation, okay? Here's the statement. In Christ, I am a loved, accepted child of the Father... And who I am is who I am in him. 
Now, because I want you to get that, I'm going to make you read this out loud too, all right? Because I want you to hear you say this about you. Let's read it. One, two, three. In Christ, I am a loved, accepted child of the Father, and who I am is who I am in Him. Let's break it down. Here's the first thing I want to point out this morning. I am in Christ. I am in Christ. That's how our identity statement begins, in Christ. You say, well, pastor, that's not how the verse begins. In Christ is the last phrase in the verse, and you've made it the first phrase of the identity statement. Why is that? Well, because as you read down verse 3 all the way down to verse 14, you see this idea of being in Christ repeated over and over and over and over again. Although this phrase is at the end of verse number 3, it is the key to unlocking the entire first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Look down, if you got your Bible open, which I hope you do, look at Ephesians chapter 1 and just follow along as I I walk through this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, in Christ we have everything, every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, in him, in Christ, we have been chosen. In verse 5, through Jesus Christ, we've been adopted. Verse 7, in him, we have redemption and forgiveness. Verse 9, in him, we have knowledge of God and wisdom and insight. Verse 10, in Christ, verse 10 and verse 12, we have an inheritance. Verse 12, in Christ, we have our hope in him. Verse 13, in him is twice, we've been sealed and our now secure in Christ. If you've not gotten the idea yet, let me just say it very clearly. As a follower of Jesus Christ, our identity is rooted and grounded in Christ. Everything we are is who we are because we are in Christ. Let me give you a classic statement Paul uses to make this this argument. Because this is not just something that Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1. As you read on through the letter of Ephesians, 27 different times, Paul is going to use this phrase, in Christ or in him or its equivalent. Then as you read outside of the letter of Ephesians, 164 different times in Paul's other writings, he uses this term, this phrase, in Christ or in him. It is the dominant way that Paul sees us as followers of Jesus. Here's the classic one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I'm going to give it to you out of J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament. Listen to what he says. For if anyone is, say it out loud, in Christ. For if anyone is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Amen? Everything has become fresh and new. Now, maybe you're saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. If... If anyone is in Christ, does that mean that some people aren't in Christ? Absolutely, that's what that means. You see, everyone in this room today, and and to go even broader, everyone in the world today is in one of two groups. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. You say, well, what does that mean? 
Well, Paul writes about it. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 21. I want to read you two verses here where Paul's talking about this idea. He's, this is one of the classic places in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul gives some definition to this phrase in Christ that he uses over and over and over again in, first, in, in Ephesians in this letter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, look what it says. For since by a man, he's talking about Adam there, came death, by a man, Jesus, also came the resurrection from the dead. For as, here it is, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see the contrast here? Paul is writing and he's contrasting those who are in Christ versus those who are in who? In Adam. What does it mean to be in Adam? Well, it means a couple of things. Number one, to be in Adam means you are a human being. If you're a human being this morning, raise your hand. Amen. That's what I thought. All right. I had my question about a couple of you, but that I thought we're all human beings in here this morning. Here's what that means. It means that we're all a part of the human race. There's a lot of talk today about race in the world. Let me just remind you, there's only one race, and that is the human race. We all came from Adam. And the problem of the human race is not a problem of the color of one's skin. It is the problem of the condition of one's heart. We all come from Adam. There's one race. So to be in Adam means that I'm a human being. Secondly, to be in Adam means that I am separated from God. You see, the Bible said in 1 Corinthians here that in Adam all die. Here's what that means. God created us to enjoy life in the context of a relationship with him. That's why we were made. That's why this whole thing of evolution versus creationism is a really big theological deal. If we came from nothing and we have nothing and we're going to be nothing, then nothing matters. But if God made us in his image and he created us for a purpose and that purpose is to know him, to love him, and to live in fellowship with him, that means now life has meaning, purpose, significance, and value. It gives us a sense of identity. God made us for a reason. He made us to live in fellowship with him. But the Bible teaches us that Adam and Eve were our representatives in the garden. And in the garden, Adam and Eve were were created in fellowship with God, but they chose to sin against God. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, we won't read it. You can go read it in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. But when they sinned against God, the Bible says that they died spiritually. It means that they lost the ability to have a relationship with God. Now, that's significant. Why? Because it's the very reason they were created. They were made to know God. They were made to live life out of the overflow fellowship with God. And when they sinned against God, they died spiritually and they lost the ability to have a relationship with God. And here's what Paul says. Every one of us who are in Adam, that means a human being, when Adam died, we all died. And so now Paul writes, in Adam all die. We come into this world as human beings just like Adam, dead to God and alive to sin. 
This idea of this evolutionary teaching also creates this fantasy that we come into this world a blank slate to be written on. That is a lie. The Bible says we come into this world having been represented in Adam. We're born into this world dead to God with a nature that is bent towards doing that which is opposite of what God would have us to do. You say, well, I'm, I don't know. Well, let me read it to you. Romans chapter 5. Look at it. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man, who's he talking about? Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. How do we know? Because all sinned. You say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, here's the evidence. You sinned. (laughs) Who taught you that? I mean, from the time kids are born. We're not teaching them how to do bad. You got to teach them how to do what? Right? Otherwise, parenting's easy. Why are all of you over here? Nobody signed up this morning to serve over with the kids. Let me tell you why. Because you know this is true. They're not all just angels over there, right? What is that? We come into this world with a nature that is bent towards doing it. To be an Adam means that as a human being, I'm separated from a relationship with God because of my sin, and I'm hopelessly lost. Let me show it to you in a list up here. In Adam, I am struggling on earth. In Adam, I am enslaved to sin. In Adam, I am condemned before God. In Adam, I am guilty of breaking the law of God. In Adam, I'm seen by God as unrighteous and unholy. I am defeated, and I am by nature and by choice. My identity is I am a sinner. That's what it means to be in Adam. And listen, left to myself, There is not one thing I can do to change this. In Adam, all die. But Paul is teaching us that there is hope by being in Christ. He said, in Adam, All die. But he said, in Christ, all will be made alive. What does it mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ is to be made alive to a relationship with God. Remember the verse we looked at a moment ago? If anyone is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Everything has become fresh and new. Well, how is it possible to go from being in Adam to being in Christ? Listen, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, a great exchange took place. Let me show it to you. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians. Look what he writes in verse 5. He, God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Here's what happened. On the cross, all that you and I were in Adam, Christ 
stood. What did we say about Adam? Adam was our what? Our representative. On the cross, Christ stood as our representative. And on the cross, all that I was in Adam, struggling on earth, condemned before God, guilty before God, unrighteous, unholy, defeated, all of that was poured out on Jesus as my representative. And Jesus Christ died for me. But he did not stay dead. That's why the verse goes on to say, he made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf. So that, that's a little important phrase right there. So that, here's the reason why. We might become the what? The righteousness of God in him. On the cross, God poured all of our sin out on Christ. You say, then how do I get in on this righteousness of God? How does it happen that I'm able to get in on that? You see, by faith, you and I can receive that which Christ has done. And here's what the Bible says. We get imputed to our account the very righteousness of God. It's important because if all we'd gotten was Adam's righteousness restored, guess what? Adam lost his righteousness. Some people say the great exchange that took place is God took all of my sin and now he sees me as if I've never sinned. Now that'd be Adam's best righteousness. We don't want that. That didn't turn out too good in the garden. Amen? People say, how's it going to be different? We get to heaven. How's it not going? Listen, because we don't have man's best righteousness now. We've been given the very righteousness of God himself. That is unchanging. That's the exchange. Now, and I want you to see this. I want to put in Adam and in Christ back up here. In Adam, I'm struggling on earth, but now in Christ, I'm seated in heaven. In Adam, I'm enslaved to sin, but now in Christ, I am free from sin's power. In Adam, I'm condemned, but in Christ, I'm innocent. In Adam, I'm guilty. In Christ, I am forgiven. In Adam, I'm unrighteous. In Christ, I'm righteous. In Adam, I'm unholy. In Christ, I am holy. In Adam, I'm defeated. In Christ, I am victorious. In Adam, I'm just a sinner. But in Christ, I'm now a saint. God took all of who I was in Adam. And he gave me all of who he is in Christ. And Paul in the book of Ephesians, that's what he's writing about. That's what he's teaching us. You say, well, how, how do I receive that? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. We're going to get there in a few weeks. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For by grace. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. We couldn't earn it. It's grace. You've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. By faith, we simply receive All that Christ did as our representative and the great exchange takes place. All that I was in Adam died with Christ and I'm raised now to be in Christ. All those things and all the things that we're going to study over the next several weekends, we're going to understand are who we are in Christ. The first thing I want you to understand today is that I am in Christ. Here's the second thing I want you to see. In Christ, I am a loved, accepted child of the Father. 
Oh, this is, <laughs> this is so good. I can't wait for you to hear what Paul says next. Listen, listen how Paul, Paul ended verse 3 with that phrase, in Christ. Listen how he began the phrase. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says he's the God and Father of Christ himself. Here's what that means. Because I am now in Christ and God is his Father, guess what? God is now my Father. Why? Because I earn my way in, because I go to church, because I do the right. No, because I'm in Christ and because God is his Father, now he is my Father. Listen to what 1 John says. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. You and I sit here today as loved, accepted children of God and there's nothing we have to do to earn that listen but that's not even the best part because I'm in Christ God now sees me as he sees Christ how does he see Christ well we don't have to wonder he told us twice matter of fact he shouted it out of heaven at the baptism of Jesus And at the transfiguration of Jesus. You want to know what the father thinks of the son? Listen to his own words. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hang on, hang on. You and I are now in Christ. Because we're in Christ, God is our Father. Meaning that God now sees us as he sees Christ. Meaning this, if you are in Christ as you sit here this morning, I have an announcement to you from the Father. You are his beloved child in whom he is well pleased. You say, wait I don't know that I've earned that. Listen, you're right. You haven't. We don't have that standing because of our performance. We have that standing because of our position in Christ. Listen to what John MacArthur said. I love this quote. MacArthur said, God knows how we were, how we now live, and how we will live the rest of our lives. He sees everything about us in stark naked reality. Yet he says... I am satisfied with you because I am satisfied with my son to whom you belong. When I look at you, I see him and I am pleased. Listen, I want you to understand something this morning. I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. If you are in Christ, God is pleased with you. Don't let your flesh, don't let the enemy, don't let naysayers tell you any different. Listen, God sits in heaven and he sees you in Christ and he is pleased with you. But it gets even better. 
it gets even better. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Look what he says. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We don't have time to unpack that, but it's a term of endearment. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, what does it say next? Say it out loud. If children, what? That means I'm getting something. Your name is written in the wheel. You're getting something. What kind of heir am I? Let's read on. Heirs of. If I said heirs of Vance, that ain't much. But the word tells us our father God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is his and all it contains. Listen, look, oh, it's even better. Listen. And what does it say? <laughs> fellow heirs with who? Listen, this phrase, fellow heirs, in the Greek language is a compound, compound word. It means two things. It means the word heir, and it means together with. Here's what that means. You got the same spot in the inheritance Jesus has. I'm in Christ. God's my father. God is as pleased with me as he is with his son because he sees me in Christ. Everything that the son has, guess what? I have. That's what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 when he says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Let me give you a definition we're going to unpack next weekend. Spiritual blessing. Here's the definition. Unending positional privileges of God's grace to those who are in Christ. And man, I'm telling you, the list is long and it is awesome. Unending positional privileges that are ours because of who we are in Christ. It means this. Because I'm a fellow heir, because he's given me every spiritual blessing in Christ, everything Jesus has, I have. What belongs to him belongs to me. His riches are my riches. His resources are my resources. His righteousness is my righteousness. His power is my power. His position is my position. His privilege is my privilege. His possession is my possession. Where he is, there I am. What he is, I am. And what he has, I am have and I am those things and I have those things because of my relationship to the Father by the grace of Jesus. I in Christ am a loved accepted child of the Father. Over the next several weekends we're going to unpack this but I want to close by helping you grasp this by telling you a story that I heard from a pastor by the name of Woodrow Kroll. It was a young man who had a father And they loved art. I mean, they were a wealthy family, and they loved the finest of art. In their their collection was everything from Picasso to Raphael to Rembrandt to Van Gogh. They had it all. This was in the period of time right before the Vietnam War, and this young son was drafted into the Vietnam War. And he went and he served his country valiantly, bravely, and with honor. And one day in battle there in Vietnam, rescuing other soldiers from harm, that son 
was killed on the field of battle. News reached the father of his son's death, and obviously he's grieved. The war ends, and a few months after the war ends, there's a knock on the front door of the home of the father. He opens the door, and there's a young man standing there holding a gift. The young man says, sir, you don't know me, but I'm one of the men that your son saved when he gave his life. And we'd sat many days talking about your love for art. And he said, I'm no Rembrandt, but I've made this and I thought you would want it. And he'd hand-painted a picture of this man's son. When the man saw it, he was taken back with emotion at the way that the artist had captured the emotion of his son and the look of his son that he took that painting and he framed it and he hung it over the mantle in his home sometime later the man died and all the art collectors could not wait because there was to be an auction they were going to auction off all the collection the Rembrandts and the Picassos and the Van Goghs and the Raphaels And in this auction, they gathered by the hundreds, these collectors. There was an auctioneer assigned to oversee it. And he walked in and he first placed at the front of the platform the painting of the man's son. He said, we're going to open the bidding with this painting. Anybody got $100, $200 for the painting of the son? And like in this room right now, there was nobody saying a word. Come on, somebody, $100 for the painting of the sun. Finally, somebody shouts out, shouts out, hey, hey, we're not here for that one. Can can we move on to the finer works in the collection? We want to get those. That's what we came for. And then others started, yes, that's why we're here. And finally, in the back of the room, the family's long-term gardener that really had nothing said, I'll I'll give $10. The auctioneer thought, surely we can do better than that. Somebody 15, 20, and again, nobody. They just argue, hey, come on, give it to him. Let's get on to the real art. $10 going once, going twice. Soul. Then they all begin to get excited, ready to see the rest of the works of art. The auctioneer takes his gavel and he puts it inside his case. He begins to close things up. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What are you doing? We're ready to bid on the other works of art. The man said, Well, there was a stipulation in the will. that I was told to keep secret until this moment. And here's what it said. Whoever gets the son gets it all. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians. 
because we have the Son, we get it all. Let's pray together this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to speak in this moment as only you can. The simple question I want to ask you this morning as you sit quietly before the Lord Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? If you've never by faith come to the place of surrendering your life to Jesus, just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a powerful song that talks about what it is to be in Christ. And we have pastors here at the front. Listen, if you'll come today and receive Jesus, I have good news for you. You get it all. You get it all. you must come by faith you must receive Christ as your Lord and Savior when we stand in a moment to sing listen don't you wait on anybody else these pastors here you come today and all you got to say is I need Jesus and we'll have somebody sit down and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a relationship with God just come you can find your identity in Christ you can leave here today pleased Pleasing in the sight of God, forgiven, cleansed, holy, pure. And for those of you today that are already in Christ, listen, my question for you is, is that the way you see yourself? See, too many people in Christ still see themselves in Adam. You're not appropriating that which you already have by faith in Christ. We're going to unpack that over the next several weekends. So don't miss. Come on. Don't, you need to be here. But here's what you can do right now. Maybe in this moment, you just want to come get in one of these altars and just say, God, by faith, I realize who I am in Christ. And I don't understand it all yet. But I want to see myself as you see me. For others of you, our pastors are here. If you need to pray about something in your job, your health, your family. Listen, we'll pray with you. You just come. Holy Spirit of God, right now in this moment, have your way. Speak to us, oh God. Move in power. May we respond in worship. Lord, I pray right now for those that are not saved, that as soon as we stand, God, they would run to Christ. Lord, I pray for those that are saved, that by faith they would see themselves in Christ. We give you praise. It's in the name of Jesus. We